0: This, this is the second, second Story podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story podcast. I'm Amanda Delheimer. This is a second segment of our podcast relaunch where we are sharing a podcast every week for the month of October leading up to our first ever Story Soirée on November 2nd here in Chicago and then resuming our schedule of releasing podcasts on the 2nd and 4th Fridays starting in November 2017. Last week on the Second Story podcast, we focused on our mission how storytelling connects us to each other and creates a world driven by empathy. This week, we bring you a story that centers one of our organizational core values inclusion. As an organization, Second Story believes that our lives and stories are richer when everyone is at the table. Today's story exemplifies this enrichment by depicting the importance of responding to crises and the sometimes painful but always rewarding necessity of having hard conversations. Second Story is proud to present C.P. Chang.
1: When I first met my wife, Jess, 10 years ago, she was telling a story on stage about how she visited England in the countryside west of London. And though she was surrounded by people who spoke English, they looked at her, an American black woman with locked hair, like she was an alien. And as I listened to her, she looked so alone and looked so beautiful that I yearned to tell her that I too know what it's like to be in a room full of people who look at you and think, you don't belong. When Jess and I married, exactly three years after our first date, we included one small element from traditional Chinese weddings, a thread that ties together two wine glasses, and we jumped the broom, a tradition from the African-American community that's so delighted just as grandmothers. And through seven years of our married life, we've loved the multicultural, multiracial nature of our own marriage, and we cherish all our friends, black, white, Asian, volatile of subjects in American life has never seemed to come between us. And then it was winter of 2014, and we were all drowning in the wake of the Ferguson grand jury sitting on their hands, and the protests that followed, and Eric Gardner being choked to death for selling two cigarettes on the street, not to mention John Crawford being gunned down by a SWAT team at a Walmart, or the 12-year-old Tamir Rice being shot for holding a toy gun. And this was well before Charleston, Sandra Bland, Samuel DuBose, Freddie Gray, the names kept going. But Jess and I had hardly talked about Mike Brown. We didn't talk about it at Thanksgiving dinner with Jess's aunts and uncles and cousins, who are all socially conscious, politically active black people. We certainly didn't talk about it at post-Thanksgiving dinner with my parents, who had no idea how to talk to their black daughter-in-law about cooking and careers, let alone about political hot buttons. It was like it was taboo to talk about, at least in front of real people. It was all over the news, on Twitter, on the internet. But in cyberspace, people can run hot with emotions and not trample over loved ones. It's harder to talk about tough stuff with people you love most we discussed it was a joke that my friend Bennett brought up while the three of us were having brunch because such things are relevant for this story I have to tell you that Bennett is biracial with a black father and a white mother. Bennett said to us you know what I don't get about Ferguson about the riots that happen afterwards why are you wrecking your own neighborhoods go to where the rich white folks live and trash their homes. Okay full disclosure Jess could have pointed out that it started off as a peace march. I could have brought up the cop who told protesters to bring it on. And Bennett, who made the joke and comes from a family of social workers and civil rights activists, he could have talked about the preemptive riot gear and militarization of the police. But that was exactly the conversation we didn't have. We just laughed at Bennett's joke and then changed the topic. And in total honesty, I was in no rush to dissect racial relations in America with my wife. I knew that the news out of Ferguson had hit Jess hard, had left her both angry and weepy, alienated from her friends who did nothing, but also distant from her friends who protested. But delaying the conversation just made it so much harder when it finally erupted. Two weeks after Thanksgiving, I was in Ohio at my parents' place, celebrating an early Christmas. I went by myself mostly to see my brother, the doctor, who never got either Thanksgiving or Christmas off and had to celebrate in between. In the evenings, Jess and I would FaceTime with each other. It was so much nicer than a phone call to be able to see each other's faces, even if there were flat screens and 300 miles between us. The second night I was in Ohio, Jess called me on FaceTime late in the evening. She'd just come back from a rehearsal for a story performance, just like this one and I could tell in her eyes that something was wrong. Honey, what happened, I asked, holding the iPad up so she could see me straight on. I was seated on the couch in my parents' living room at the other end of the house from everyone else gathered around the TV. Nothing, it was fine. Jess had her iPhone propped up against a book at her dinner table in Chicago while she finished her dinner. She insisted it was fine, but then she said, it's just that... After I was done reading my story aloud, this older white woman from the band leaned over to me and asked if I had written that. She paused to let that sink in. I told her, yes, all of us, me and the other tellers, we all wrote our own stories. And then she said, it was really good. That's nice, honey. Her face darkened like a thundercloud at that. CP, you don't get it. How could you? She was upset, but her cryptic comment frustrated me. Try me. She didn't ask anyone else after they finished reading. Don't you see? She asked the darkie because it was so impressive that this black woman could write so well. You don't know that. She could have been... Don't. Just don't. She didn't have to describe it for me, I could imagine. Jess would have come straight from her yoga class wearing her sweatpants that were one size too big in order to fit over her yoga pants during the wintertime. She would have been wearing the hoodie sweatshirt that I saw through FaceTime. No makeup on, no jewelry on her wrists or in her earlobes. Her mother, I know Jess's mother mostly through stories from Jess, would have scolded her. Jessica, you went out in public like that, in front of white folks? What did you expect them to think? We're not those kind of people. Those kind of people, Jess's mother would have said, firmly entrenched in the politics of respectability. Because that's how it goes. That's what this seeping of institutional racism does. It divides all of us, not just black and white or black and Asian, but even this kind of black and that kind of black. When others measure you by the color of your skin, you have to cover it in just the right way. Jess was looking away from me, and I know that most video connections are odd that way. When you look at the screen, your eyes are above or below the camera, and there's this vague lack of eye-to-eye contact. But this was different. She wasn't even looking at the screen. She grimaced like she tasted something sour and said, you don't know what it's like. I do. Do you? Yes. Jess, I get stared at when I walk into an all-white bar. People always ask where I'm from. Flight attendants ask me if I speak English when I sit in the exit row. It's not the same. You don't understand how I feel. But if I were black, I could. Is that what you're saying? she bit her lip. I don't know, maybe, that you'd be better understand, understood by a random black man than your own husband. God, you make me sound like a bitch when you say that. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Jess and I have tried to be extraordinarily conscious in how we live in our marriage two lessons that have been handed down have always resonated one you can't avoid fighting but never fight dirty we came razor close to breaking that first rule that night she was scared and alienated but I I was angry angry at her angry at the whole damn world angry that this had to come between us while Jess cried bitterly in Chicago I ratcheted down my anger in Columbus she told me, "I feel like this is the first time that race has come between us. What are we supposed to do now?" I don't know. Keep talking, I suppose. That second lesson of marriage: no matter the fight, find a way to make up. But the worst part of uh, the worst part about a FaceTime conversation is that there's no way to be close to your partner after you're done talking. If we were at least in the same space, then maybe we could reach out across the couch or even just lie side by side in bed. Sometimes there are no more words and sorry is meaningless and hollow. But even in our worst fights before this one, even if the arguments were left unresolved, we would lie in bed next to each other. And the smallest touch of her pinky finger reaching out to touch mine was a moment of grace but we had no such opportunity that night. Just looked away and mumbled, it's really late, I have to go to bed. I nodded. She paused for a second as if there were something more that one of us would say, something like, I love you or I'm sorry, but neither of us said anything. And so she reached a finger toward the screen, I did the same, and the screen went blank. I was left alone in the dark of my parents' living room, around the corner and out of sight. My brothers laughed at something on the TV, maybe a Christmas movie like Elf. My hard of hearing parents were upstairs bickering mindlessly. Jess was, I don't know, brushing her teeth maybe, or watching a sitcom rerun on the computer, or maybe still sitting at the dinner table crying. I thought back to my friend Bennett's question, why people tear down their own neighborhoods in riots. And I knew the answer then. When your grief is this great, of course the hair you tear out is your own. Of course you beat your fists against your own chest. Of course the house you burn down is your own home. I put the iPad down and joined my brothers around the TV. They didn't ask questions and I didn't offer any news and after a while I went to bed. Before I fell asleep, I got a text from Jess far later in the night than she would normally be awake. I'm scared, she wrote. But I love you, and I don't want to be married to anyone else, ever. I imagined her lying awake on her side of our bed, by herself in the darkness of our large apartment, feeling so alone. I texted, I love you too. I'm sorry I didn't say it before. Promise we can keep talking. I promise, she wrote back. But the truth is, we didn't talk about it the next day, except to apologize about the fight. And when, the day after that, Jess met me at the airport, she gave me a deep, long hug and kiss like we hadn't seen each other in weeks. We only had a little while together before her next appointment, but we held hands as we drove there. Before Jess got out of the car, she turned to me and asked, it's gonna be all right, yes? For a split second, I wondered silently, were we gonna be all right? If there were no one else and nothing else in the world, If only we could ignore all the strife and all the trouble, we'd be great. If only. But instead of any of that, I kissed her and told her, yes, we're going to be okay. I drove myself back to our apartment. And once I was inside, I found myself walking through our home, touching the walls, hoping that they would be enough to hold at bay the outside world.
0: The story was curated by Amanda Delheimer and directed by Jessica Kadish. Live music and sound design for this story were performed by Jazzology. The Second Story podcast is produced by Liv Oaf. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and this this is the Second Second Story Podcast.